We're looking this morning at the subject of Jesse's branch, and that's taken from verse 2 of our text, Isaiah 11. And in this, you'll note from your bulletin outline, Israel cried for a king. You say, well, didn't they have a king? Well, no. And I'll mention that shortly. But look at verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. As we look at that, perhaps it would be profitable to remind ourselves that Jesse was King David's father. Jesse was King David's father. You know the account that Saul of the tribe of Benjamin was Israel's first king. But before Saul, guess what? There were no kings in Israel. All the nations around them had kings, but not Israel. Instead, the people were governed by judges whom God raised up and appointed. Some very famous people like Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Samuel. And in the case of Samuel, he was also a prophet and a priest. We have his writings in the Old Testament. But not all of the judges were spiritual leaders like Samuel. Some were exalted for their military prowess, and I'm thinking there primarily of Samson. Not, not great spiritual leader, but military leader, yes. As time went on, the people of Israel got impatient with their judges, and in the days of Samuel, they started clamoring for a king. They said to him, and I'm going to read it for you, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5. They wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted a king, and they wanted what goes along with a king. Armies, power, rule control, peaceful times. And they wanted someone to protect them so that they could go about their life in ease. Well, we got the king and he's got the army and okay, we're safe. But you know, they also got some things that they didn't bargain for and God warned them up front, oh, you want a king? Well, and now here's God speaking. This is what the king who will reign over you will do. They hadn't thought about this, but God warns them up front. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. That's what? That's a military draft. That's what he's going to do. You want an army, but guess where he's going to get his army? It's from your sons. Okay, he goes on. He'll take others to plow his ground, his ground, and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war. So there's munitions factories. Can't have an army without bows and arrows and shields and swords and all those things. He'll take, him, take your sons to make weapons of wars and equipment for his chariots. What about the daughters? He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. It's going to have a lot of 
uh, personnel to take care of, government personnel to pay for. You know, when you get government, we know about that. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. What's that? Taxation. How am I going to pay for all these people that I got to feed and for my army and my horses and all of that? Oh, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take from your fields. He goes on. He'll take the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Do you know how many times the word take is found in that statement by God? Five times. Here's what you think you're going to get, but here's something you haven't thought about. Five times over, this king is going to take, 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 take. That's what government does. Oh, and one last and most serious consequence. When that day comes, says God, you will cry out for relief from the king. The king that you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. 1 Samuel 8, verse 11. Wow. Talk about 180 degrees opposite of what they expect they're going to get from a king. Why do we have this person in government doing all these take, 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 take? God, give us relief. And the heavens will be brass. Now why would God take such a position? He tells Samuel to tell these things that I just read to you to the people. Go out there and tell them, you want a king, here's what's going to happen. Why would he do that? Because God knew the true nature of Israel's request for a king. Samuel, who was the judge at this time in history, was very hurt because of Israel's request for a king. He, he, he took it personally. And I think any of us would do the same. He took it personally because he was the judge. He was the ruler under God for Israel at that time. And so God said to Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. Well, that really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Leave it to God to get to the heart of the matter. Samuel, just chill, you know. It's not you that they're upset with. It's me. They don't want me. To rule over me. You see, the judges ruled on the basis of the Mosaic law, God's law. Why was God rejected? Well, because they didn't like his law. <laughs> That's basically it. His rule called them to a life of holiness. No God but one, no graven images, no misuse of God's name, no breach of the Sabbath rest, no killing, no adultery, no bearing false witness, and so on and so on. As the ten words come. And this is the same reason people reject God in our day. God cramps 
their immoral lifestyle. He condemns it. He calls men and women to a life of right living and right behavior in keeping with the truth that all men are created in God's image and are to reflect the holiness of his character. We were made to be righteous. But we have marred the image of God in us. And what is more, we have preferred the deformity to the pure image. Sin makes us ugly, but in one sense or another, we like ugly. Because there's no restraint necessary in order to be ugly. We can just be ourselves and sin will do the rest. I am what I am. I've heard people say that. I am what I am. You've got to take me for what I am. They're basically saying, I am not going to change. I like me just the way I am. And if you don't like it, you can lump it. But you see, to live for God, to live under the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to his law is a task no one wants to do. And you know, we often shrink from it as well. And when we do do it, we approach the righteous life kind of half-heartedly and with such meager devotion that scarcely any change is noticeable. Dan has been dealing with that in the adult class, really seeing how the cross of Christ is to be reflected in our life. We see no inconsistency whatsoever with claiming to be a child of God and yet living every day of our lives with no thought of God in the decisions that we make and the activities that we engage in. And this is every bit a rejection of God as our king, is Israel's cry, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. It's the same kind of rebellion. Saul was Israel's first king. And you know, for a while, I mean, he seemed to be doing a, an okay job. But one day, one day, after God had told him specifically to utterly destroy the Amalekites, God's arch enemy, he took it upon himself to save some spoils from the battle with the notion that the best sheep, the best animals, would be kept for making sacrifices to God. What would be wrong with that? We're not taking them for ourselves. We're, we're not getting rich off of this conquest that we have successfully mustered. No, we're going to take the best of the spoils of war and give them to God. That's certainly got to be good. Well, we learned in our study in 1 Peter that it was not the prerogative of the prophets who spoke for God to add to or subtract from the message God gave them to speak. And the same holds true for king and commoners alike. When God speaks to us in his word, we do not have the prerogative of altering his directives. Even if our motives seem to be good. Saul kept the best animals to make offerings to God. Which, from our viewpoint, what's wrong with that? It seems like a commendable motive. But God's answer to Saul was this. Listen to his answer. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Now notice the next phrase. As much as in 
obeying the voice of the Lord? Good question. Well, I saved the best animals so I could give them to you as a sacrifice. You see what I'm doing? I'm sacrificing to the Lord. And God is saying, is that what I told you to do? Is that the equivalent of obeying? Is that as good as obeying what I told you to utterly destroy the Amalekites and all that they had? And then... He doesn't let Saul answer the question. He answers his own question. God continues. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. King James Version says witchcraft. And arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Saul, listen to what you've done. You've committed idolatry. You think you're worshiping me, but you're really worshiping yourself and your own will. You've placed yourself on the throne. You've dethroned me. And you've rebelled against my word. Now he goes on. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 and 23. Now, brethren, be sure you get the principle here. God wants your obedience more than your sacrifices. It's important. He considers any alteration you make to his commands, the sin of rebellion and a rejection of his word, but we're not always careful to live our lives in this way. Let me give you an example. I mean, if we're, if we're negligent, for example, in our obedience, um, maybe our prayer life, expressing our love for one another, you know, we're told to love the brethren and so forth, fellowship and so on, church involvement, we're kind of negligent in those areas. What we tend to do is to substitute something that we consider to be of equal value. We make a financial sacrifice by placing a large sum of money in the offering box. Or we decide on some activity which will cause us to put ourselves out for another so we can say, well, I sacrificed. I went without. We deprive ourselves or our families in some way. We make a big gesture of sacrifice and we think that this will make up for all the days and all the weeks and all the months in which we have been living in disobedience to God's clear directives. And by the way, I'm very happy this past week with all the ice taking down all the electric wires and so on that our church has risen to the occasion. We've helped one another. We've shared generators and wood and all of those kind of things and cut down limbs that were in the way and really trying to help one another. And we ought to be doing those things. And, and, and I'm saying that probably has cost people something to do that, not only of their time and energy, but money and resources as well. But sometimes we do these kind of things as though, and I'll say it this way because uh, kids think this way, uh, making brownie points with God. You know, it's kind of like, 
well, you know, this will please God. This puts me in a right status with him and so forth. Well, we lose big time when we do this. And Saul lost big time. He lost the kingdom. He lost his son, Jonathan, in a battle. And he lost his own life. Same battle. This is where David came in and Jesse, his father. Saul and his reign lasted but 42 years and his dynasty ended. And when that occurred, David, a shepherd boy who took care of Jesse's sheep, was anointed king in Saul's place. And what was the criteria for David being anointed over, let's say, someone else from some other uh, family. Samuel said to Saul, You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and anointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 and 14. And God found such a man and a shepherd boy in the house of Jesse, a humble sheep herder who lived in a town called Bethlehem. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. After parading seven of his sons before Samuel, all of them being rejected for the new king, Jesse brought David, the youngest, who was out doing what he did, take care of dad's sheep, and he was finally anointed. And the Bible says of David, from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13. These were David's humble beginnings. Now it would take many more years serving as Saul's personal servant with attempts made on his life by Saul on numerous occasions before David would finally ascend to his throne, his own throne. God promised David that he would establish his kingdom forever. There would be no termination of his dynasty as occurred with Saul's. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now that brings us to Isaiah and this business of talking about the stump of Jesse. Now, as soon as you hear the word stump, you're, you know you're talking about a tree that was cut off, right? That's how you get a stump. As Isaiah writes his prophecy, a lot of water has gone under the bridge. Israel is no more. Judah, the southern kingdom, is soon to be no more. David himself is no more. When Isaiah writes. Nebuchadnezzar will come into Jerusalem with his fully mechanized army. They will lay siege to the city and Jerusalem and the Davidic government will fall. His grandsons, his great grandsons will be carried off into captivity. 
where they will live out their lives for the next 70 years. And then a small remnant will return under the permission of the Persians. David's ancestors will come back too, and they will re-inhabit the land. Eventually, Alexander the Great will overthrow Persia and usher in the age of the Greeks. And in time, Rome will overthrow Alexander and occupy most of the known world, including Palestine, the land of David. But buried within that territory, yes, in David's little town of Bethlehem, Isaiah sees Jesse's house all but gone. It's just a stump now. That, that's all that remains of the mighty cedar which once towered up into the heavens and ruled over God's people. The canopy of branches, the strong trunk which once stood there has been cut down and turned into lumber for the royal palaces of Persia, Greece, and Rome. David's dynasty, like Saul's, appears, appears to be only a memory. But wait. As Isaiah is in vision, he sees an astonishing thing happen. Out of that dead, decaying, lifeless stump of Jesse, a little shoot springs up. And it becomes an adult branch capable of bearing fruit. And as with David of old, his forefather, verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. And Isaiah sees him judging the people with justice, verse 4, and ministering to the poor of the earth, poor not only in material goods, but poor in spirit. Life out of what appeared to be death. I had this happen in my um, own front planning in my house. A disease or something, I don't know what happened. It was I had a flowering plum. They don't produce fruit. They just produce nice purple flowers. And anyway, it, it just kept dying off and dying off and splitting and dying off. And I, I said, I've had it. I'm going to whack that thing off. So I got my chainsaw out and I leveled it to the ground. And I said to Donna, well, I'm going to try to find another ornamental that maybe will be more disease resistant. And I'll just plant it out there by the stump. This was in the fall. Next spring, out of the stump came a shoot. I said, what? You know, I thought I killed that thing. And then more shoots came out, more shoots. And today, my dead plum tree is about this high and still growing. And I'm whacking off all the other little branches so that the ones that came up the furthest get the strength and nutrition of the root. The root of Jesse was still strong, though the mighty tree had been cut down. So just when all looked like gloom and doom, hopeless and lost, at a time when mighty Rome has swallowed up every king, every kingdom on earth, in the town of David, in Bethlehem, David's heir 
is born. A king is born who is destined to bring Rome and every nation on earth under his reign and authority. And it is done right under Rome's nose, so to speak. Right in their own backyard, in a little insignificant town in the tetrarchy of King Herod, the king of the Jews is born. And even when he sends his soldiers to slaughter all the male children in Bethlehem, He misses getting the Christ child because in a dream the night before, God warned Joseph to take Mary and the child and flee to Egypt, which he did. And Herod missed killing the Christ child. So the scripture was fulfilled again, which says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now what is the character of Christ's kingdom and rule? Well, number one, it'll be a spirit-filled rule. Notice how many times reference is made to the Spirit of God, beginning in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Four times Spirit, which is capitalized by our translators, because they know that Isaiah is not simply talking about man's spirit, the inner life animating principle that's found in all of men. No, he is talking about God the Spirit indwelling this person called the branch. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. And so we are introduced to the truth that there is a realm of beings which is not material in nature, but spirit. And in fact, the ultimate being of the universe is spirit, not material. God is spirit. And it is God's nature as spirit which permits him to dwell in the lives, may I say, in the bodies of all of his people. By the spirit's presence, we are afforded all of those attributes of God's character which he has decided to share with his people. Which, by the way, distinguishes us from the brute beasts of the field. Now, some characteristics of God, he does not share with us human beings. Omnipresence, for one. The fact that God can be everywhere at one and the same time. It is being a spirit which enables him to do this. Really? Well, aren't the demons spirit beings? Can they be everywhere at the same time? I'm talking about one spirit. No, they can't. They are creatures limited by time and space. But God, because he is God, is everywhere present in his created universe. Omnipresence he does not share with created beings. Again, his infinity. He does not share with his creatures. We had a beginning. God has no beginning. So God cannot share his infinitude with us. Unique, 
being of the universe. Again, his transcendent glory. God is above us in every way, and we cannot share in that type of glory, not now, not in the world to come. So there are some things about God's character that he does not share with us as creatures. And there's many other things. I'm not going to elaborate on all of them. But other things he shares. And he shares them by the indwelling of his spirit. We have some of these things mentioned as characteristics of the branch here. The distinction seems to be, however... That the branch, the Christ anointed of God, unlike David's anointing by Samuel, is endued with these things without limitation. I'm referring to the text in John 3, verse 34 and 35, which reads this. The one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Wow. This is never said of us. It is never said of us. Even when the Bible speaks of us being indwelled by God's Spirit as believers. So as we look down through this list, we see the Spirit's operation in and through the branch. We are to understand this as God enabling his Son Jesus with all the powers and insight of God himself. Thus he is God in the flesh. His role is spirit-filled. Now how is that manifested in his life? Well, Isaiah tells us a number of things. First, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Without a doubt, the teachings of Jesus Christ are recognized, listen now, even among unbelievers, as part of the wisdom literature of the world. The insight he had into God's thoughts we well understand because we know he was God in the flesh, but to the average onlooker, all they do, all they can do is marvel. As early as age 12, we are told, they found, the parents, they found him, Jesus, in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him, 12 years old, was amazed at his understanding and his questions. Luke 2, verse 47. And when he went back home to Nazareth, Luke tells us Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And that's a great encouragement to children here this morning. You don't have to wait till you become an adult before you can learn about God and his will. You can be sure that Jesus was taught long before he reached age 12. You may not be able to Understand everything I say in a sermon, but you can get some things. You can train yourself to listen. You can learn what you can learn. And this will make you a wise son. It will make you a wise daughter. If you get God's words into you, children, 
you will learn the wisdom of God. Start when you are young. Develop that habit of listening and learning to listen and then to apply. If you don't do it while you're young, I'm not sure that age will improve it. Sadly, there are still adults that have never trained themselves to listen. They're fiddlers in the pew. They're manicuring their nails. They're making out their shopping list. They're daydreaming about their dinner plans. Or the men, i got to change the oil in that car tomorrow. Boy, it's way overdue. The Lord was full of the wisdom and understanding of God. And the beauty of it all is that he shares his knowledge with us, his people, through his teachings. Second, Isaiah says that the branch has, was to have the spirit of counsel and of power. Some people's counsel isn't worth the breath it takes to give it. But when Christ spoke, he was, as we learned in the previous message, he was the wonderful counselor. Isaiah 9, verse 6. And with his counsel, he was the mighty God, also Isaiah 9, endued with the spirit of power, also found in our text. In other words, he had something wise to say, and he had the power to support it. And counsel here is not in the sense of advice. Sometimes when we talk about counseling someone, all we really mean is that we have shared some advice with them, our opinion on whatever the topic might be. Christ never shared opinion. He gave counsel, and his counsel demonstrated the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Men ignore God's counsel to their own peril. You can take a fellow sinner's advice or leave it, because their view on things is no more trustworthy and reliable than your own. But to ignore the counsel of God when he speaks is another story altogether. Ignoring God is akin to the same sin of Saul when he was impoverished because he decided that he would do his own thing with regard to God's command to destroy the Amalekites. He chose to do things his way and God disowned him and dethroned him. But the people of Jesus' day were all struck by Jesus' teaching. Coupled with the demonstration of power. Both are referred to here in our Isaiah 11 text. Teaching, power. Let me read it for you from the New Testament. Speaking of Jesus, it reads, The people were amazed at his teaching because... He taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. A demoniac present in the crowd that day tried to disrupt Jesus' teaching, and Jesus turned to him and said, Be quiet! And addressing the demon within, he went on to say, Come out of him! And we read the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. 
The people were so amazed that they said to each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits. And they obey him. Mark 1, verse 23 and following. Unique in his teaching. Teaching with power. You know, brethren, when I teach you as your pastor, I am working with borrowed material. It's all borrowed. There isn't an original thought in one of my sermons. My message is taken from the scriptures and from what I can glean from the writings of godly men. But when Jesus taught, he taught as the authority behind the message. He wasn't quoting Rabbi so-and-so. He wasn't saying, well, I think. Well, it's my view that. He didn't read anything but the scriptures. And when he spoke for God, he spoke as God. And this is why God said of him from heaven, Luke 9, verse 35. A voice came from the clouds saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. What's the main characteristic of Christ's people? He tells John 10, verse 27. 